This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Kevin Thumpston as he considers questions of the heart and our identity in Christ. Kevin Thumpston is the lead pastor and coordinator of church planting at Watershed Fellowship. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Kevin Thumpston considers how to listen for and love well towards our true identity in Christ. My name is Kevin Thumpston. I'm from Lexington, South Carolina. You can probably tell by my accent that I'm from South Carolina. Uh, I am a senior pastor at a church called Watershed Fellowship and also help oversee church planning across several presbyteries um, in South Carolina. And so uh, this is a picture of my family. I've got three kids and they are all now, as of August, will be out of the house. They'll be going off to to college. So y'all can pray for me and my wife. It's uh, a little bit daunting for us to, to think about that. Well, it is a a daunting task to think about doing a a seminar on evangelism, but the Lord has just really uh, just given me a love and a a passion for the lost. And uh, there was something that happened to me when I was uh, planting a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I had gathered a group together. It was all the leaders, the key leaders for the church plant, and if, if you are pastors or if you uh, serve in the church, you know how hard it is to get everybody there. <laughs> and, and, you've, and you've got it all organized and you're ready to, to do the big business of the church and pull it all together. And then something happens. And I had just sat down and I was ready to go with, with uh, the leadership team. And in comes John Schwartz. And uh, I look over and he's a... A skinny guy with disheveled hair um, on a crutch. His leg was a, a bloody mangle. And I said, oh, you know, just an arrogance. I just looked at everybody and said, y'all, just wait right here. I'll take care of this. And so I took him into my office and uh, I said, um, you know, what can I do for you? Can I get you some food? Can I get you some money? Uh, what can I do for you? And he said, he couldn't even look up at me. Couldn't even look up at me. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't want any money. I don't need any food. Could you just speak to me as if I was human? 
He'd just speak to me as if I was human. See, he'd just tried to throw himself um, in front of a car to kill himself. He had been racked by abuse most of his life. He was under a lot of addiction issues uh, and just a lot of things in his life had gone wrong. And people would treat him as an object and he viewed himself as an object. And so that day, I thought I knew what the big business of the church was. But God grabbed a hold of my heart with that question. Would you just speak to me as if I was human? And so it really set me on a journey of how do I speak and love and care for people with the gospel as if they're human. Those created in the image of God do respect and honor no matter their station in life. And so when I think about evangelism, I think about that, you know, it's not a methodology. It's not something that you memorize and you regurgitate towards people. It's, it's a relationship with God as you study, as you read, as you memorize Scripture, as you get to know God, you get to see who you are in Him and all the ramifications of what He has done for you in Christ. And it's through that that you begin to love others. And so evangelism is about knowing God and His Word rather than memorizing evangelistic methodology. And as I started looking around, just how do I share the gospel in a culture of crisis? And we'd all admit that we're in a culture of crisis. Will we not? It doesn't take, it doesn't take a long look to know that we're in crisis. And so as I started thinking about sharing the gospel, three things really came to mind and heart. Uh, you know, the first is that our culture has a deepening identity crisis. The second is there's a demand uh, for self-discovery. And then thirdly, there's a unique cry of each individual heart. Just along the way, as I started to, to sort this out, and I define crisis as an incipient moment of danger, a time when things start to go awry, a perilous situation, when one should be especially wary. You know, when I started sharing my faith after I came to the Lord as a junior in college, it was just a, a very emotional testimony. People knew I had changed from, from this guy to a different guy. And so I was just excited. I told everybody about what Jesus had done for me. But then as I started to grow, I realized I needed a little more depth, a little more substance to uh, sharing the gospel. And so I started learning different um, biblical ways to share the gospel. But most of them were confrontational in methodology. And I started to see that when I, when I shared the gospel with people I did life with all the time, the confrontational methods ended the conversation pretty quickly. And so I wanted a way to share the gospel that blessed the person, no matter if they believed or not. That it, it helped them rethink their life, give them a paradigm of, of identity, and hopefully that they would put their faith in Christ to find their true identity in Him. And so I wanted to figure out a way to bless them. And as I looked at the culture, I looked at the crisis that we're in. Shane Looper of HuffPost states it well. He says, America is lost. She doesn't know where she is or in which direction she should be moving. There are people on the left shouting to her to come their way and people on the right doing the same. Worse than not knowing where she is, America no longer knows who she is. 
And so just as a nation, as a people, just we're being torn back and forth. We don't know who we are, even more so where we ought to go. Even secular writers from the Atlantic, uh, Chris Weller says this, For some, that choice, talking about answering the question, who am I? For some, the choice is, the, the choice is liberating. It's a chance to start from scratch. For others, the sheer volume of options can be paralyzing. In either case, modernity compels us to declare our identity with conviction, whether we found it or not. Whether you really believe <laughs> the, the identity that you're claiming, our culture is shouting at you better side with somebody. You better make a decision. You can't just stay in the, the no man's zone. And then Paul Tripp, the mustached wonder, <laughs> says, let me just say in this new, his new book, Lead, which I recommend, let me just say it, there may be no more important and life-shaping interpretation that human beings make than identity. We were meant to get our foundational sense of identity vertically from God. This is how we know ourselves to understand our meaning and purpose. But the rejection of God and sin has left human identity in a morass of confusion and the battleground of spiritual war, creating endless layers of difficulty and brokenness. That identity is at the, the heart of who we are and the way we see ourselves in the world around us. Amy Mullen, she's a world record, record holder paraplegic, fashion model, actress, and she says that we're in a culture today where everyone can be an architect of their identity. She has, uh, I think, six different types of legs that she can put on. Some make her over six feet, some make her shorter, some are more elegant, some are athletic. And she says she can change her identity. It's around uh, empowerment of what she can do for herself than a disability. I think we live in a culture where everyone is an architect of their identity. And so, as I started thinking about this identity crisis, I thought identity really is the open window of the soul today. If we want to target, if we want a sweet spot to go after with the gospel, it's around identity. It's just an open window. And uh, it also takes it from most of the gospel presentations that I've seen, it starts from um, a sense of redemption, uh, and it doesn't go all the way back to being created in the image of God. But that's the, the common denominator of every person, is that we are all created in the image of God, whether we're, we're fallen or redeemed, no matter what race, no matter what gender. And so I think identity is the heart of it. But since we're in an identity crisis, I think about judges. You know, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone is defining themselves. There's also a second thing that I saw is that there's a demand for self-discovery. And when you think about why are people so distrusting and cynical today, I think there's a lot of things that have gone on in the heart that they demand self-discovery. They don't trust authority. They don't want to be told who they are and the way they should live. There's just a mistrust. They've seen the powers uh, abused over them, whether it be nationally or locally or even in their own uh, homes. They are skeptical. 
They look at the hypocritical Christian leaders that so many were following and they fall. Just recently with Ravi Zacharias and Carl Lentz, Mark Driscoll. There's a lot of this younger generation that was really latched on to these leaders. And when they see them fall, they get very hypocritical and skeptical about anybody that has power. Their wounds they carry in their own hearts from broken families. I think I minister more to broken families than I do to those who have uh, a historical family heritage of, of being married together uh, for years and years. They're also angry. Uh, they see the bureaucracy of, of this world and they see that change is almost impossible. That, that people say a lot of things but they don't really accomplish anything. And so they want to see change but they are angry because of the inability to see people do it. And then I think the church and the Bible to them is irrelevant. It's an archaic text. So there's just a lot of things that have caused them to be those who are wanting self-discovery. This was another interesting thing that I saw is the quantified self movement. That there's a whole movement of technology that quantifies how many steps you take, how many breaths you make, how many beats of your heart, how many uh, diapers you change during the week. You name it. You can, you can track everything and you can uh, establish an identity around your habits. Behaviorism. The only thing that our world has not been able to establish culturally is how do you quantify your identity? How do you quantify your identity? They don't have anything to measure that. And that's where the beauty of the gospel comes into play. There's a great book. It's called The Power of Moments by uh, Chip and Dan Heath. It's one of my favorite business books. Uh, and they talk about this, this study that was done in uh, India. And they, the biggest need was um, sanitation. And people were dying because there wasn't clean water. And so they put in these latrines in each of these villages so that they would go to the restroom in the latrines. But they saw nobody would use them. And then they started asking, they said, you know, that's nicer than my home. I'm not going to go do that there. And so Dr. Kamal Carr decided to do something else around self-discovery. So he would go into the village and he would find out the, the word for um, excrement, the, the worst word you could think of that the village would declare. And he would just ask them. He'd gather the village around and say, so where do y'all go and do this? And they would start pointing over in a field. And then he would ask, well, where do you go when, when you really can't make it over there? Well, we go over here. And then he got more personal. So where does your family personally go? And then he gave all the children yellow, uh, buckets of yellow powder. And he said, I want you to go and I want you to sprinkle this on all the excrement. And so they went around the village and they, they made a game of it. And before they knew it, they saw the whole village was surrounded by yellow powder. Then he said, let's have lunch. And so they, they sat down and he pulled a hair out of his head and he rubbed it in some of the excrement. And then he put it in some water and he told the first person, drink it. They said, no, I'm not drinking that. And then they did another one, another one. 
And they sat down to eat, and he allowed them to see the flies that were landing on all the food. And he said, you know, my hair is far less stickier than the legs of these flies. And all these flies are on our food. What else are the flies on? It clicked on them. My excrement is killing the children of our village. I'm going to go into the latrine. I'm going to go into the latrine. And he said they had to trip over the truth. They had to stumble over the truth themselves for it to change their lives. And it was powerful. I think today we have to allow the non-believer, our friends that are lost, to trip over their own mess. To trip over their own sin. We can't just tell them that they're sinners. And then, all right, I believe you. They've got to see it for themselves. The third thing that I saw was a unique heart cry. We're in a culture of no one understands me. Individualism is king. And so to do a canned evangelism method is very generalistic. And it misses the heart cry of the individual. Now, it could be like a shotgun. You may hit some. And I've seen others come to know the Lord through a lot of different methods. And I'm all for learning as many methods as you can. But I tell you, I want to, if I could hit a sweet spot and go right at it, that's what I want to do. And so how do you find out the unique heart cry of the person, the bullseye? And so there is only one gospel Hear me, there's only one gospel, but one size doesn't fit all. And so Charlie Munger, he's a, he was Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He was a financial genius. And so he put these mental models of financial decision-making in his head. I mean, hundreds of models. And he would, he would come into a situation and he'd realize, number 87. That's how you solve this, this financial problem. And he had these mental models that he memorized. I think we need to have as many tools that we can, we can muster up so that at any moment we can uh, share the gospel, the good hope that we have within us. There's a great book that uh, Sam Chan, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, How to Make the Unbelievable News about Jesus More Believable. He talks about that in the Bible, there's not just one method of the gospel being shared. Talks about Jesus used parables to share the gospel. There are songs, there are creeds, there's letters to the churches, there's one-on-one -on -one conversations, there's sermons and formal worship, there's discussion meetings, there's public speeches, apocalyptic literature, miracles. There's all kinds of ways the gospel is declared in the scriptures. And so we need to gather up as many tools as we can so that we can be effective. Track evangelism, that's one that I learned um, in college that I would share uh, uh, with students. It's the one verse evangelism with Romans 6.23. There's also the four spiritual laws that when I was engaging with Campus Crusade that we shared. There's uh, Evangelist Explosion. Once I became a pastor, I, would, I got pastor-teacher trained in Evangelist Explosion. The diagnostic questions, you know, if you were to die tonight, uh, why would God, why should God let you into heaven? And are you 100% sure uh, that you, when you stand before him, that um, he would let you into heaven? 
some diagnostic questions. There's also um, there's gospel presentations around life questions that you would take people through questions and work through that. There's the God test that you can point them to. There's also a near and far. I did this in um, neighborhoods and doing prayer walks. And basically you just go up to folks and uh, as, as you interact with them, you know, do you feel near or far from God right now? And if they say far, you know, why, why do you feel far from them? And they'll tell their story. And then you just share a story about, you know, there was a time when I felt far from God. And this is how I felt about it. But then God drew me near in Christ. Uh, and then you start a conversation with them to go and see how Jesus drew other people near to God that were far away. There's also gospel bracelets and balls, uh, paraphernalia, Christian paraphernalia. Uh, we used the soccer ball when I was in uh, Colombia and South America, and it was very, very useful when we just did soccer clinics uh, in, the, in the different towns. So gospel things. Also, evangelism today, Alan Dayhoff, tattoos. He looks at the writings of identity that people etch on their skin. There's no shortage of that. So it's a great way to start interacting with folks. My daughters always get on to me because whenever I go into a store and somebody has a really cool tattoo, I start talking to them about their tattoo and their eyes go, oh, what are you going to do, Dad? Well, he does interviews where you talk to non-believers and say, you know, I'm trying to figure out as a, a pastor or a leader in the church how to listen better and to uh, care for people. Would you mind doing an interview? And I'm, I'm not going to answer anything. I'm just, you know, unless you want me to talk. But would you mind me interviewing you about your spiritual life? And so he goes through these different questions. I love number six. If any of your answers are wrong, would you want to know? Or if you could ask God any question, what would it be? So all these are different, different ways to share the gospel, and you can look those up. And, um, but I really struggled with how do I share the gospel on an ongoing, consistent basis with those who I do life with from day to day, and that it's a blessing. And so I put together questions of the heart, and it's modeled on a passage from Colossians 4, 2 through 6. I didn't want it just to be my idea, but it needed to be biblical. And so in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prison, in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so in this passage, I saw that there was this leaning in, leaning into God and leaning into His Word, uh, leaning into our friends' hearts, uh, listening for the identity challenge that they were going, going through, and then loving them well graciously and seasoning their life with the gospel so lean in listen for and love well everybody say that oh y'all are worse than my kids <laughs> but you lean into the heart of god and the heart of your friends and leaning into the heart of god you do it through prayer and the word and i'm going to go quickly through this passage because 
uh, I'm, I'm assuming you are um, more grounded in, in the scriptures. <laughs> um, and then we can go through and I'll show you the questions of the heart. But he says, continue steadfastly in prayer and be watchful in it. J.I. Packer says, the prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helpless dependence. What we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. You have to lean into God. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who changes lives. He's the one who gives life and takes it away. He's the one that's been working in their life. And so I can't, I can't overemphasize praying for those folks around you, laying them before you. John Smith, he, uh, he stopped church planning and went fully on with prayer ministry. He realized that was a missing thing of the church, a missing uh, means of grace. To, to know how to be a friend of Jesus and bring our friends to the presence of God. We enjoy Jesus' friendship and prayer as we dialogue with Him. Apart from prayer, friendship with Jesus can never begin to grow or grow. In prayer with Jesus, we grow rich in our friendship with Him and rich in our friendship toward others. We live out His friendship as we intercede on behalf of others. And so I ask you a challenging question. If God were to answer all your prayers this week... How many people would enter the kingdom of God today? I mean, we ought to believe that God, He says He'll answer our prayers according to the will. He came to seek and save the lost. How, how are we praying for an unbelieving friends? And, I mean, wouldn't He have the gumption just to answer it? Just to answer it. And so, be bringing your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers before Him. You lean into the Word of God. Paul said this in Colossians. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. I mean, the Word of God is the double-edged sword. It's the one that can cut to the soul and deal with the identity. We need to lean into the heart of our friends. Paul said in Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. I love how he says that. Walk towards them. So I'm telling you, walk into the crisis of your friends' lives. Walk into the mess and the struggle and the suffering, the confusion into your friends' lives with wisdom, which the wisdom is the truth from the Word. And as you pray, the Holy Spirit applies the Word into lives. Scott Saul says this, real friendship is hard. There are other less real versions of friendship. The less real versions are less because they are less costly, less committed, less disruptive, less scary, less gritty, less gutsy, and less out of control than real friendship. But here's the rub. Less real versions of friendship are also less rich. He goes on to say the world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor, not the kind who deny their fellow man, take up their comforts and follow their dreams, but the kind who deny themselves take up their crosses and follow Jesus in his mission of loving a weary world to life. I mean, wouldn't it be tremendous if the way we listened to and leaned in and loved our neighbors was the greatest apologetic that people would want to know our God, know the Jesus that we represent. But there is also a warning. James Wyatt, a good friend of mine, a pastor in Cary, North Carolina, he saw that I had kind of a savior complex. 
and I kind of took over people's struggles and their mess and I took it on personally and I wanted to save them. And so he sat me down and he said, Kevin, we're not responsible for our friend's salvation, but we are responsible to them. We're responsible to them. And so if you find yourself and you're in a situation with folks and it's a pretty difficult situation, there's a reason why Jesus sent them out in twos. I mean, there's, there's strength, there's encouragement, there's prayer, there's wisdom. There's just accountability. And it keeps you from being a savior because we're lousy saviors. But we are responsible to them, to love them like Christ and to share the gospel with them. He says we actually are supposed to do it with Thanksgiving in Colossians. I did a study on Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving Day. I thought, you know, we always go around the table at Thanksgiving and say what we're thankful for. I said, what would Jesus say he was thankful for if he sat at my Thanksgiving dinner? And so I looked at what Jesus was thankful for. I was surprised that it didn't say that he was thankful often. But there are three main times that he gave thanks. One was at Lazarus' tomb. One was breaking bread at the Passover. And then one was on the Emmaus Road. And the three things that really shocked me was, one, with, with uh, Lazarus, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you always hear me. And I say this so that they will believe that you always hear me. It's an act of faith, thanksgiving, that it's an act of faith that God is going to do things before you even ask him. The other is that at the Passover, he was thankful that he could give his very life sacrificially for them. That he didn't give thanks that his life was comfortable and all those things. Thank you, because the cup that we serve in the sacrament, it's the, it's the cup of the new covenant. It's the cup of thanksgiving, the Eucharist. He gave thanks that he could die so that others could live. And also when he fed the 5,000, he gave thanks before there was anything provided. <laughs> he, he knew that he would provide. And so we're to, we're to do all this with thanksgiving. We're to listen for, too, he says, to be watchful and that he wanted to make it clear. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul Miller in his book, Love Walked Among Us, he says that, uh, that uh, there are about 40, other, 40 different times that it talks about Jesus looking and seeing at someone. He was always looking for the opportunity for the gospel to go forth. And so we need to be those who are watchful, uh, looking for opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, he says this in John 9, 1-3, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We need to watch and not judge those around us or critique it, but to see this is an opportunity. It's not about did they sin or did somebody else sin against. It's an opportunity for God's glory to come forth. And so you, you watch for those opportunities. Mike Mason, he's an um, Episcopalian. He, uh, he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of People. And he said it's kind of a takeoff of uh, practicing the presence of God. And Brother Andrew, that God is always practicing the presence of his people. His eyes and his heart are always toward them. And so we are those who should practice the presence of people. 
He says we're going to get mixed up. It's not this uh, sideline kind of thing, a spectator sport. Love requires getting mixed up with people. We're going to spend a lot of, li- of our lives mixed up anyway. Why not do it together? <laughs> Frederick Beekner also says you need to watch for the silence in people's lives. You've probably learned more about someone about what they don't say than what they are saying. Listen to the silence. And it's interesting, so far in the passage in Colossians, Paul hasn't really said anything. (laughs) He's prayed, he's asked for the word to go forth, he's asked for a watchful spirit. But he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He talks about making it clear that we listen for that, that open window of identity crisis, I think, today. And I want to speak the word as a clarity. It's, it's bringing a brilliance to darkness. It's bringing a light where there is no light. How can I, how can I speak the word clearly in that sweet spot? that the, the brightness of the gospel, the brightness of Christ, could shine in the dark, darkest dark of their heart and meet them there. We're to love them well. And I think this is what I really longed for. How can I love my friends and neighbors? Because I do love them. How can I do that as a Christian and share the gospel with them? It's always being gracious. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is a, a mountain in Painola. It's a big stone. And a little bit about me, I was born with spinal bifida. I wasn't supposed to walk. Uh, the Lord chose otherwise. And, um, but in 2015, my spinal cord tethered, and I about lost my legs. And so I lost about 45% of the muscle mass, and it's just been a whole different ballgame. Well, I went overseas to South America with my daughter because she wanted to go to soccer ministry. And uh, halfway through, they said, hey, we're going to climb this mountain thing. <laughs> and uh, this is the side of it. Those are the stairs. And you can see it goes into the clouds. And I'm like, I am not going up there. Well, one of the coaches, I mean, professional soccer player, he said, you know what, Kevin, I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. You can stop as long as you want, but we're going to make it up to the top because the, the view is breathtaking. You've got to see it. I want you to see that. And every step of the way he went with me. That's grace. We need to be willing to, to, to walk with our friends slowly and graciously because the sight at the top, what, what they could be embraced in in the gospel is so glorious. It's worth taking the time. And this is uh, seasoned with salt. Many of y'all might know Aaron Franklin from Austin, Texas. Uh, he says this, And I think it's very telling for us for gospel sharing. He says you need to look for the right brisket. Carefully trimming the fat. I only use kosher salt, freshly ground black pepper. The salt should bring out the natural flavors of the brisket. Tending to the fire is more important. Cooking it low and slow over homemade coal is the key. Then you can add the barbecue sauce of your choice. Salt is a preservative and a flavor enhancer, and therefore sharing our faith should have a lasting influence. The gospel is powerful enough. You don't need some fancy extras. 
You can share the Word of God, and it can be done in a conversation. I think Paul embraces this and embodies this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I want to take a little time for you to see there's, there's, there's a reason why I, I, I thought this is a good way to share the gospel, and, and a, it's a biblical way. And so it's really a conversation that you have with people, but it flips to answer the questions their heart are asking, their hearts are asking, rather than you asking the questions you want them to answer the way you want them to answer it. It flips the conversation. And it's around faith and ignorance and arrogance and how Christ meets us. This is the big picture. Don't get overwhelmed with it. Um, but it's the big picture. I call it the identity pendulum. And this is what I walk people through when I talk with them. Um, now, I'm going to... In the book, I wrote a book called Questions of the Heart, and it's just basically a practical guide. And it, it defines all of these these uh, terms and gives you examples, life examples, of what they each look like. And in your little packet, there's the little packets that has that uh, pendulum in it. But I wanted something that I could actually write on a napkin, that I'm sitting down with someone, it'd be very simple to, to walk them through. You can do it verbally, but I've seen visually it's a lot more powerful because they actually can think through it. And so let me just walk you through... Uh, one that I just did with a guy. So he is a very intellectual guy. Um, he's a professor out at USC, and uh, his heart had just been broken. Uh, he dated a girl for about five years, and she's a believer, and he's not. And that was kind of the issue. And so I'd gotten to know him, and he said, hey, can, can we talk? And so I said, sure. So we sat down, and he started sharing some of this, this challenge that was going on. I mean, it was a crisis of identity for sure. And I said this, and this is how I walk people through. I said, you know, you know, these kind of things really challenge who we are. It really challenges what we believe, and it just messes with our mind and our hearts. And... Uh, there was something that, that I learned that really helped me kind of realign myself in the midst of these challenges. Would you mind if I shared that with you? Sure. Every single person that I've asked has said sure because I already have a friendship with them, and I want to bless them. And their sweet spot right now is that moment. They're really struggling over this. And so I write out the word identity. I still have struggle with spelling. So, you know, we all find our identity in something or someone, a position, a philosophy. We find it, and it, it, it defines who we are. It also causes us to see how we are in relationship with others, with the world around us, even with ourselves, and, if you believe in God, with God. We all find our identity in something. Now, the Bible says that we are created in God's image. And at that moment, he said, well, I don't believe the Bible. I said, well, just go with me. And so there are six identities that, that the Bible really talks about. 
that we're all learners. We all have the ability to reason, uh, to rationalize, to strategize, to plan. We, we, we formulate a worldview around uh, ourselves, the, you know, the creation, everything around us, work, play. We're supposed to think through that and have an understanding of that. We're also created as worshipers. We're supposed to be able to give ourselves fully to something, to lose ourselves in it, to praise and to give thanks and to find great joy. It's, it's what we think about often. It's, it's what fills our hearts. It gives us joy. And when it's not there, it, it really makes us sad. We're be able to give ourselves. We're worshipers. We're also the beloved. We were created to love and to be loved. We were created to be in relationship. And we were created as neighbors. We were designed for community, for friendship and family. We're supposed to be surrounded by others and to, to give ourselves to each other. We're also culture makers. And I usually talked to him, I, I said, you know, you're very gifted with intellect and you're great with technology and you oversee all these things. You know, God made you one who could do these things. We all have gifts, we all have passions, we all have skills. He gives us experiences, and we can be useful, and we can transform the culture and shape the world around us. And then we're also to be servants. You know, if you look around, things aren't the way that you would like them to be, are they? Things are broken, they're not whole. And so we're supposed to go in and to bring wholeness into brokenness. We're to make those things that are yucky more beautiful and glorious. We're to serve those around them and care for them. So these six things is the way we're designed by God to find our identity in Him. I said, if you had to think about which identity is being challenged right now in your life, which one would it be? And, and I pray for them. I challenged Him. He... he, he he buckled on a few of these because he didn't believe in creation and all these different kinds of things. But we walked through that. Which one do you think he circled? I get him to point it out and I circle it. Murder? No, no, he was he he knew the world. Beloved. I thought beloved too. You know, he just he just shared about. The girl and the breakup and how he, he you know, he, he just couldn't figure it out. He said neighbor. And I thought, that's interesting. He said, I've done my life with her for five years. We go and we have fun. We have our lunches together. Um, I took her home. She, I go to her home. We, we do everything together. And I can't, I can't imagine life without her by my side. Closest neighbor. I said, well, it's interesting. You know, by faith, I, I really define myself according to these identities. I have to take God at His Word. I have to look at His Word and say, this is who I am and this is how He's, he's made me. I said, but at any given time, um, when our identity is challenged... It swings back and forth 
and it swings back to ignorance or arrogance. The Bible actually defines these two as two sides of the same coin of pride because it's sin. And ignorance, we don't think we need to know God and we don't have the time, we don't want to waste the time to think about what he says about who we are or the life that we're living. We don't think it's worth it. And arrogance, we don't think we need it. We already know everything. We're experts. And so I'm not going to listen to some archaic writings for this. I say, which, which posture do you have toward God with this identity challenge? And he said, well, I pride myself in never being ignorant. And that already defined it, right? <laughs> and so he said, ah, I, I guess it's arrogance. But he is the kindest guy in the world. I mean, he really is a good neighbor. Um, but loving others is what defines him. And so I said, well, it's interesting when our identity is challenged, it changes, changes who we are. And as a neighbor, you know, we become loners in ignorance or we become politicians in arrogance. Then in ignorance as a loner you you really just have been hurt and broken. You don't need need to be with anybody else. So you're just gonna do life on your own. Politician, they use people to benefit themselves. I said so I guess you've been a politician with her. Oh, that did not go over well. <laughs> He's like, I am no politician. And I said, well, let's think about that a little bit. I said, you know, you were feeling, you were making her feel so many things in your life that she has no ability to feel. You're using her. And then I said, what do you think about it? And he said, this is when they start giving their backstory. It's usually around this time. And he talked about a relationship that he was in and she broke his heart before. And, um, and so he was going to do it right this time. And he was going to throw himself 100% in and solve the issues that he didn't do the first time. And he started to see that he was using her. And I said, I just really appreciate you. If I have time, sometimes I'll say, well, can you tell me the others? And I'll go through all of them. But we try to focus on this. Usually people have two. If they're in three, they're in crisis mode. One guy had five. He went to prison the next day. Um, so, but then I say, you know, I appreciate you sharing this with me. And we usually ask more questions. I just listen to him. And I say, would you mind if I prayed for you? And uh, a lot of people have never been prayed by name before God. But that's how you lean in. You, you lean in to the, the ear of God and you bring them in there. And then I'll say, you know what? The cool thing about what the Bible says is that God created us His image. And then we went and we worshiped other things. We decided to make up our own reality. Uh, 
we have broken relationships. Uh, we don't serve. You know, there's all kinds of things, but it says that he came to earth to identify with us. It's one of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. And he came to identify us, with us in that sin and that brokenness. I said, isn't it a wonderful thing to know that we're not alone in these challenges? That God is with us. And he's actually given us a way out in Christ. Would you mind, you know, there's a lot of stories in the scriptures that Jesus dealt with people that had similar identity challenges. I'd love to talk to you about it. Would you want to meet again for lunch? Sure. The thing that I've seen they always take the napkin. And I do the come and see prints because Jesus would go to folks and he'd say, come follow me. And you see that Holy, if the Holy Spirit is working in their life if they're going to come and follow. And so in the book I have five other conversations for each identity um, that you do follow-up conversations. Jesus dealing with uh, a person that usually is either ignorant or arrogant and one maybe with faith. They're not all matched up. So the next time we met, um, I, I took him to um, the, uh, the law, the greatest commandment, because he thought of himself as a very upstanding guy. And I said, well, and you're very smart. Well, a teacher of the law came to Jesus and asked him what the greatest commandment was, loving God and loving your neighbor. And I walked through that, and he, it hit him. He's like, you know what? I have made so much of my life about loving my neighbor and I didn't ever ask God how he loves neighbors. And so he learned about justice and um, faithfulness and uh, around, around love. And so he said, can we meet again? I said, sure. I said, let's look at how there's an example of someone loving their neighbor according to how God loves us. So we went through the Good Samaritan. And he saw how you love someone according biblically. Then he said, let's meet again. <laughs> I was like, sure. And so the next time we met, he was different. And he came and he said, God got me. I'm Christ now. Uh, last him into my heart this week. And uh, he said, let me pray for us. You always pray for us for lunch. And he, beautiful prayer. Now, he got God. He didn't get the girl. Uh, I hate to say, I just did her wedding <laughs> to another guy. Uh, but, she was concerned that he just asked God into his life because he wanted to get her. And so they met, and she was like, you know, I'm just, I'm torn. I really love you, but I just, you know, you can't be codependent on me and my faith. And he goes, oh, ho, oh, oh. ho. He goes, Christ is mine now. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm not going to use you anymore for that. And so he came into the Lord. So that was fun. Um, and then we just kind of walked through those things, and I plugged him into a discipleship group in our church. So this is the conversation. And uh, Tim Keller says, A man once said to a pastor that he would be happy to believe in Christianity if the cleric could give him a watertight argument for its truth. The pastor replied, What if God hasn't given us a watertight argument, but rather a watertight person? Ultimately, faith and certainty grows as we get to know more about Jesus, who he is, and what he did. And so my ultimate goal is, as I walk through this, this gives them a paradigm for their identity that they've never had before. 
And whether they come to know the Lord or not, they take this home and they start thinking about these six things. And they start thinking about, how do I become a learner? What am I worshiping? They start asking these questions. But ultimately, I take them to probably around the second time. I just talk to them. I say, you know, it's really, really amazing. Christ, he is the fulfillment of the one who we find our identity in. You know, as a learner, he is truth. He's the very word of God. As a worshiper, he's, he's God himself. He's the only one that could claim worship, and he did, willingly. Uh, Christ is the beloved. He is love, it says. He is the, the, the groom of the bride. You know, he's our big brother that, that came after us, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers, and he's taking us back home to glory. He's, he's the greatest neighbor. He took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He came and lived in our neighborhood to come after us. He is the creator. He is the ultimate culture maker that we reflect. And as for a servant, I mean, there's no other belief system that God has died for sinners. And it's through his death that he gives them righteousness. So you get the depth. You start to point them through. And that's, that's the beauty of these is that they really are who Christ is. And that's where they find their fulfillment or union in Christ. A couple other things um, that, uh, well, you need to be able to tell your story. Because they're, if they're going to be willing, if you want them to share their story and open up, you've got to be able to willing to share yours. So at the end of the book, I share my, my testimony up till I got married. And all the identity challenges throughout my life that God pursued me and the scriptures with it. Um, and, and you want to share little tidbits. And so you think about little testimonies of your own life according to these different ways. Because Christians and non-Christian light, our, our identity is always being challenged. And, uh, and er- ignorance and arrogance. And then the follow-up conversations. Jesus did this with the guys on the Emmaus Road, he came out, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he enters into the conversation. And that's what we do with these follow-up conversations in people's lives. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.